You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. I'm Rabbi Sue Jacobson with NRF Streamcast, and we'll spend our time learning Torah, having fun while we learn. And you can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorahgmail.com. And of course, I will answer as many as I can. Or, or you can go to our amazing webpage at letstalktorah.net. Letstalktorah.net. The old shows are there, the new shows are there. Questions, comments, and of course, the all-important donate button. That's what keeps us going. If you could please hit that button, hit one of our four levels or whatever amount works for you. That would just be amazing. Helps our show grow, helps our show continue, pays for this amazing studio. And of course, in advance, I do thank you. So this week, I was lucky enough to go on jury duty. I had jury duty this week. Uh, get out there bright and early. It's it, for I mean, I've done this before. It was about a 35-minute drive. The roads were uh, sloppy. And you get out there and, you know, you get your badge number and I happen to be number 209 and whatever, you know, and you're sitting around and I'm studying and I happen to be near uh, somebody I know, so we're sitting there. And I don't know what time it was, probably 10.30, maybe even 11-ish. Okay, they call a whole group of us. And they bring us upstairs, and they bring us into the courtroom. If you've never done it, there, the truth is there are some interesting things going on. Just, you know, it's difficult for a lot of us to do jury duty. And this week was like, okay, one day you have to go. You have to go, you have to go. And if you're going to put me on a day trial, okay, I, I'm in for the day. But he announced that, I mean, you just had to listen to the list of witnesses that were going to be called he said it's going to be to the end of the week. That's not good for me. I'm a teacher. Um, I teach children. And getting subs or having assistant principals teach is disastrous. They, they need the teacher they're used to. And I happen to have um, our big presentation for the year it happens to be Sunday morning. And, and I spend probably 35 minutes a day preparing them, going over, working with them so they'll be ready for Sunday morning. To not, to not be in class for a whole week would be disastrous. You can't just reschedule these things. So when you're sitting there, the judge asks if anybody has any extenuating circumstances why you can't be there, and, and he starts on one side of the room, and this one has a trip, and this one has a doctor appointment, and I said mine. He just writes down. It's very interesting. He doesn't automatically let you go. First, let's see who gets called into the jury box. If you're not called, so uh, he doesn't even have to worry about it. Well, I was called to the jury box. I'm a teacher. I'm a podcaster. I can't help it. I need to talk. And everything I say is never short. Well, our show is short, but, you know, comparatively, I don't do yes and no answers. Everything has to be a conversation. Okay, so first he wants to go through the jurors. What do you do? And, and uh, what does your wife do? And or if you're married, and do you have children? And, 
So everybody's, you know, quick, you know, oh, I'm married or I'm divorced or I'm retired or uh, I have two children or I have no children. My turn. Okay, my wife's a preschool teacher. Um, I'm a teacher. So the judge says, oh, what do you teach? Hello, he, he's not Jewish. Nobody in the courtroom was Jewish. Not the plaintiff, not the defendant. No one's Jewish there. Happens to be. I said, I mean, you want the details of what I teach? Okay. Eh. I, I, I'm telling you, I was entertainment for, for, that, uh, for that room. And okay, and then uh, anybody, uh, uh, a lawyer, has anything to do with lawyers? Well, you know, I studied Talmudic law, and I, uh, okay, fine. And well, you know, the judge says, can you, can you judge um, honestly? Can you, um, you know, can you follow the court law? So, of course, I have to have a comment. I said, you know, um, years ago, we had gone to small claims court. We had a, it was an interesting law. It happens to be a very interesting law. The law is that um, if somebody calls you and you say, you know, please put me in your do not call list, and they call again, you're allowed to sue them because they're harassing you. So we had done it a couple of times. And the new judge came into the small claims court, and my wife goes down, and he says, I don't like this law. I said, uh, like, who cares if you like it? You don't like it. It's the law. Nope, I don't like this law, so therefore I'm not going to do it. So I told the judge, I said, look, like, you know, if you tell me the law, I don't mind, but, you know, I had this experience. And like, <laughs> every time the judge said something, I had a comment. So the judge says, what kind of court was it? I said, small claims court. He says, well, you know, small claims court really has different rules, but in our court, if I tell you the law, can you follow the law? I said, if you tell me the law, no problem. Then he says, has anybody ever been sued? It was, the, it was a civil case. I said, as a matter of fact, I was sued. And, I mean, I was sued, but it was really to get to the insurance company. I said, it was a very traumatic experience. My wife really had a very, very hard time. It, it's, you know, over the years, it took a long time to get over it. So he says to me, well, can you judge fairly? Can you be a fair jurist? Can you put that aside? I said, look, I'm not a robot. I have a brain. I'll certainly try to be as honest as I can. I wasn't looking to try to say anything silly or racist or whatever to get out of the, the court. I, I, I'm trying to be honest. I have a feeling most of the people in the room, like the lawyers, have to dig to see if you're really going to be helpful or not helpful. I, I made it pretty easy for that lawyer. So I said, what do you want? I'll, I'll try. But again, it's, you know, it's something that you know, I've been living with. And then the, the plaintiff side gets up and he goes through and he, again he asks me, do you think you could be honest if you see that, uh, that, that, that really my plaintiff is the one that was, uh, that was taken advantage of? I said, I'll try. But it, it, once it went through the lawyers, then you know, they got up and he said, okay, juror number four, um, you can step down. So I said, thank you very much. And um, I'm not sure there was more entertainment. They kept me in the jury place till about three and they finally let us go. But anyways, it was a um, certainly a fascinating day. And I'm not sure that has anything to do with what we're going to talk about. I guess we'll figure it out. But I, I wanted to take a dive. I wanted to take a dive to the end of the Torah portion, 
what happens at the very end of the Torah portion, it talks about um, the phylacteries, tefillin. We talked last week, my son, my youngest, just started putting on um, tefillin, and and it's been um, very, very exciting for him. Very exciting. And and it's it's interesting. There's there's four there's four um, paragraphs that go into these boxes that you wear on your arm and on your head, and two of them happen to be at the end of this week's Torah portion. Two of them happen to be at the end of this week's Torah portion. So. Um, so thinking about tefillin, it's it's it is it's you know it's our, it's like it's our connection to God. Like you're tying it on, it, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's it's something special. Men get to wear it, and watching a boy do it when he's younger is just so exciting and so just like becoming an adult. It's just, it's beautiful, but it's a very very powerful. Mitzvahs. We're going to talk about the Ramban. He has something to say about it. But I, I saw a fascinating story with Tefillin. So this goes back to the 1920s, I think. Somewhere in the 1920s, perhaps 1930, but I think close to 1920s. And there was a big meeting of rabbis in the house in Chavetz Chaim. The the Europe was very poor. People were starving. I mean, there just wasn't money. Um, people were out of work. Right? So in America, they had their own issues going on during that time. And the schools were struggling. All the different Torah schools and the, and the students, the, nobody paid tuition. You had to go fundraise. There was no such thing as tuition. And, and the schools were having trouble just getting the bare necessities for students. So they were they had meetings for hours and hours trying to come up with different ideas of what they could do. And the Chavetz Chaim himself was very disturbed. He he didn't have any ideas. He was sitting there quietly. Anyways, afterwards, one of his students by the name of Shul Greinemann came over all excited and he said to the Chavetz Chaim, he said, I have an idea. I have an idea. Chavetz Chaim said, you have an idea? Okay, I'm ready. He says, tomorrow morning, when I put on my tefillin, I'm going to tell God I want the whole reward for the one day of putting on my tefillin that you, God, will send us down all the food or money we need to feed all these students. What do you say to that idea? I'm willing to give up. I'm willing to give up all the reward I'll get in heaven, which we all know is amazing, to take care of these students. So the Chavetz Chaim says, the Chavetz Chaim says that, let me ask you a question. If you, if you really understood the value of one day of putting on your tefillin, you would understand that your idea is ridiculous. Imagine a child finds a check written out for a million dollars and he brings it to a candy store and he says, I'll give you this check. I need you to give me a bag of candy. Assuming that the owner of the candy store 
the owner of the candy store is an honest man, he'd say, my dear child, this check is too big for a bag of candy. I cannot accept it. And, by the way, we should really find out who dropped the check, right? You're not dealing in the same currency. And Chavitz Chaim said the reward for the mitzvah, any mitzvah, but the reward for the mitzvah tefillin is so great. If you understood how great and how humongous that reward is, you would understand that that it, it just doesn't compute. You can't offer it. You, you can't offer a million dollars for something that costs $10. You can't offer something that's worth a billion dollars for something that costs $100,000. As much as you need, $100,000. It just doesn't compute. It doesn't work. That's part of this amazing command that, again, is one of the early commandments. When we get out of Egypt, we get out of Egypt, there's, a, there's some review on some of the commands of the Passover sacrifice, and, and then we get into, and then we immediately get into um, the, the tefillin, which, by the way, mentions over and over that we have to remember we were in Egypt again, took us out of Egypt. Ramban says, talking about the the Smiths of Tefillin and remembering we left Egypt and and the Ramban it's a very famous Ramban that he just he, he talks about, you know, there's so many commandments that are tied in to leaving Egypt. There's so many places in the Torah where we keep saying over and over and over and again that that um, yeah, this command is to help you remember we left Egypt. So many commands to remember we left Egypt. Like, why? So Ramban says, because you got to understand, a lot of miracles take place over here, right? We had ten plagues, and we're going to have uh, next week's sort of question going through the Red Sea and the splitting of the sea. And God's not doing miracles for no reason. That was, I think, a double negative. There's got to be a good reason every time God does a miracle. And the bottom line reason is when God does miracles, it's to make sure that we recognize there's a God. He is here. He cares about the world we're in, and he controls it. There's certainly no um, you know, clear, what we'll call super clear miracles for the whole world to see. There's all kinds of miracles happening all the time. You open your eyes, you probably see a whole bunch of them, but, but at least recognize that the purpose of the miracles, these are philosophical things we've talked over the years. We talked about a lot of times at the beginning of the book of Genesis, uh, Beratius, that, that when God does a miracle, he's taking care of all the philosopher issues. What issues do philosophers have? If there's a God, he's not around, he could care less about us, and it has nothing to do with this world. No. The miracle says, I'm here. And I care what's going on. Because if I didn't care what's going on, why am I doing a miracle? And God's saying, I control everything that's happening. Otherwise, how can I do a miracle? So miracles, if we understand why they're being done, and we understand the lesson of the miracles, right? there's all kinds of stories going on out there. And there'll be more. Right, what's going on in Gaza right now with the soldiers, how God's protecting them. There's miracles all the time. All you got to do is be willing to open your eyes and watch those miracles. 
So talking about philosophy and paying attention and opening your mind and seeing what's going on. So the Ger Rebbe, the Chidush Arim, tells a story. There was a minister who received a prized Arabian horse. And it was, this was a very special horse. It was beautiful. It was majestic. And he took care of it, and he brushed it, and he fed it, and he had people taking care of it. And wherever he went, he took this horse with him. And one time he had to go on a trip, and he was nervous. He knew he'd be very busy on the trip. He wouldn't be able to take care of the horse the whole time. So he brought along a guard. And he told the guard, he says, you are responsible for this horse. You have to stay awake the whole night. By day you can sleep, I'll be taking care of the horse. But at night, you have to be awake no matter what. How are you going to keep awake? I tell you, keep awake. If you can think of some good philosophical questions, that will ensure that you will stay awake because you'll be busy thinking. And if your brain's thinking, you'll stay awake. The minister goes to sleep, but two hours later he wakes up. He's all nervous. He's all nervous. So he visits the guard, and the guard uh, greets him, and he, he says, the minister says, do you have any good philosophical questions? And he says, as a matter of fact, I do. I've been wondering. When you bang a nail you know, into a piece of wood, so the nail created a hole, where did the wood go? Very good question, the minister said. Very good question. I'll be back later. Minister goes back to sleep. Two hours later, again, the minister is uh, a little nervous. He wakes up, and he says, he comes down, and again, the, the guard is there, and he says to the guard, so what are you thinking about? He says, you know, when you eat a bagel, and you eat around the hole in the middle of the bagel, when you finish eating the bagel, where did the hole go? Ooh, very good question. Very good question. You think about it. Okay. Comes back an hour later. Can't sleep. He goes downstairs. The minister has his, uh, I'm sorry, the guard has his head in his hands. And the horse is gone. So the minister says, what happened? He says, sir, that is the greatest question of all. How is it that I can watch your horse all night and somehow it was stolen right under my nose. This, the Chedush Arim says, is how the philosopher thinks. He has all kinds of reasons why he exists, what life is about. And everything is stolen from under his nose. Because he's busy with his philosophical questions. He's not paying attention. Right, let's not take something complicated. I'm sorry, let's not take something simple and try to make it complicated. Let's keep it simple. And simple is, you see a miracle, you experience a miracle if you're lucky enough to recognize that you experience a miracle. So then just recognize that God is tapping you on the shoulder. He's saying, how are you? Here I am. I'm taking care of you. I care about you. You're important. And move on. Like, why make life so complicated? I don't know why people make life so complicated. But people do. They make Life complicated. So this week's Torah portion, um, we're sort of hanging out at the end of the Torah portion. So uh, the Jewish people are taken out. What happens? The um, 
They bring their sacrifice. God says everybody has to stay in the house. They're going to eat their Passover sacrifice. I tell people all the time. Their Seder was way different. Way different than what we're used to. Way different. In what way is it way different? Their focus was eating the meat. They were going to eat that sacrifice way before the middle of the night. They weren't going to keep it to the last second. They weren't going to sit and schmooze for hours. First, we're going to eat. We're going to make sure we do this command of eating the Passover sacrifice on time, and then we'll sit back. Then we'll talk about all the miracles that take place. And actually, in Egypt, what happened was they, the Jewish people had to stay in the house. Now, they had flat roofs. So when it says you had to stay in the house, you couldn't leave the front door. You couldn't go out through a window. But you could take a staircase onto the roof. You were allowed to be in the open air. You just weren't allowed to go through your front door and be in the street. So they finished the sacrifice. They finished all the things they had to do. Then God comes through and kills all the firstborn. You hear the screaming through Egypt. And what does everybody do? They all go up to the rooftops and they praise God because they know that they're on their way out of Egypt the next morning. And they're all singing. They're praising God. They're saying the Hallel. And what are the children doing? I mean, we like to all think that our children, if we're praying in synagogue and, and we're saying hallelujah, we're saying praises, oh yeah, our children are sitting right next to us. I always remember my father was a stickler for prayer. Like when you went to prayer, you did not play around. You stood next to him, you didn't say a peep. And that was me. That was my brother. We stood there like soldiers. My youngest brother was a character. I remember one time, you know, there's this silent prayer where you're not allowed to talk. You're standing quietly and, and everybody's, you know, praying. And my brother came, he was must have been four. I remember he had a cute, you know, uh, sailor uniform. And as soon as my father started praying, he walked a bunch of chairs. He walked like way out of reach. And he starts dancing, dancing, silly, playing. He was a kid. My father didn't know what to do with him. Like he couldn't, like, he can't get him. He's still praying. But that was the last time that brother came to prayers for a long while. So he wasn't ready. So what are the children doing while the parents are praising? They're, they're, they're running around. They're on the rooftops. They're running around, yelling at their friends across the street, yelling at their friends at the next roof. Who knows what? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh needs to find Moses because the firstborn had been killed. And Pharaoh's the firstborn, and he wants the Jewish people out of his hair, out of Egypt. He's got to find Moses. The problem is, um, and we touched on it in the last show, that during the plague of darkness, Pharaoh told Moses, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. Okay, so what's what? <laughs> Moses is staying put. Pharaoh can't call Moses. Because he already told Moses he can't come. Moses said, great, I will never see you again. Now what are you supposed to do? So the Pharaoh is, goes on his own to the Jewish neighborhood to find Moses. You can be sure. There's no ways. There's no streets. There's no addresses. How, how do you find Moses? Okay, you run into the Jewish neighborhood. There's a lot of Jews. Exactly how is Pharaoh supposed to find Moses? Huh? See a kid on the rooftop. Hey, kid, where does Moses live? <laughs> kids are now going to have a good time. Oh, he lives that way. Okay, thanks. Pharaoh runs down the block. Oh, where's Moses live? And the, the next kid on the next uh, 
uh, rooftop says, uh, make a left. He makes a left. Make a right. Make a left. Go straight. Wasn't I here before? You look like the same kid. Oh, sorry, I got confused. Go this way. And they have Pharaoh dancing. He is running from street to street, yelling, where does Moses live? Where does Aaron live? Come on. Somebody help me out over here. Where, where am I going? What is going on? And eventually, I, I can't tell you how, because the kids weren't going to make it easy. Eventually, he finds Moses' house. He can't go into Moses' house because he can't see Moses. So Moses is by the window. Pharaoh is on outside of the window. And Moses says, okay, Pharaoh, what do you want? I said, I want you guys out of here. <laughs> We're slaves. We can't leave. So Pharaoh says, the Jewish people are free. Now, when he said that, God broadcast his voice. The whole Egypt hears the Jewish people are free. Okay, it's time to leave. So, so um, Pharaoh says to Moses, okay, I freed you. Now get out of here. Leave. Be gone. So Moses says, um, we can't leave. I mean, Moses could have said, God said we're not allowed to leave the house in the middle of the night. Instead, Moses says, come on, Pharaoh. You think we're sneaking out like criminals in the middle of the night? We're going to go in broad daylight. So Pharaoh says, fine. So the next morning, people are starting to get ready and starting to get their dough, and the mothers are making breakfast. And and Pharaoh says, you got to be joking. You, You don't think, or the people actually forget Pharaoh, you don't think. They were going to actually let you make breakfast. You guys are out of here. So they pressured them, and they, and they had to pick up their dough and borrow the gold and silver and get their caravans and get everybody into this place called Ramses. And from there, start traveling. And when they finally get 80 miles away, then they can sit down and start baking their matzah. That's a miracle because the science, that guy's not changing. The science is that after 18 minutes of adding water to flour, it's it's now leavened bread. Okay, the music is playing. I hope you guys enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, for all wonderful sponsors. Listen, you know, I can't do it without you. Then we're under production team. We have Alan in the back. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. There's a house we can build